Amen. Take your Bibles tonight and turn to the book of James. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. I noted a moment ago when uh, Jeremy was praying, he said that we, would, uh, that we might hear a still small voice in a few moments. I was going to ask him to pray that I would have a little better voice, you know, when, when uh, I got up to, uh, to speak. <clears throat> I am much better than I was, but still having a little bit of an issue, seems like. And, uh, but I am grateful that the Lord has been good. I, I was reminded by that, too, that, um, you know, many times God does speak in small, still voices. It's not in the, in the grandeur or in the, the loud, boisterous moments, but it's in the still, small voice. Uh, when I went to Pine Grove Baptist Church in Picayune, I used to be a little more fiery when I preached, Maybe. I remember when I went down there, uh, one of the deacons, who actually was chair of my committee, after I'd been there some time, he said, I think you have a little Pentecostal in you or something other. <laughs> I said, we call that Bapticostal, you know, or something like that. And, uh, <clears throat> but I was challenged one day when, uh, when a younger uh, child came up to me. Uh, her name was Mallory. Leslie, I think, was she in kindergarten or first grade when we moved there? first grade, she came up to me after a service, and uh, she was as genuine as could be. You just have to know Mallory, and of course, you know, seeing her now, she's graduated high school and all that, and just a precious young lady, and she looked at me, and she asked me, she said, why do people always scream when they talk about Jesus? Because <laughs> a lot of the preachers she had heard, that's what they did. And it challenged me at just a moment, you know, that, you know, we shouldn't always scream when we talk about Jesus. Now, there are times that we ought to get a little louder, but there are also times where God speaks in a very still, small voice. And I am grateful to know that. I'm grateful that he speaks to us continually. So I want to use the voice that I have, whatever that is tonight, to bring you a message from James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And I do want us to... Look at what real religion looks like. What does real religion look like? Now, when I use the word religion, I hope that I'm using it the same way that James is using it. He's not talking here about personal convictions. He's not even talking about your personal walk. He's actually talking about a community of faith, an organized group of individuals that he's, he's referring to here as a religion, as a group of people. What are we supposed to look like? How does it flesh out in our lives, the Christian walk? Well, a few weeks ago, I guess a couple of weeks ago now, we talked about how our God expects us not just to hear, but to do. That when we come to the scripture, that we look into it as though we're looking into a mirror. And just as we look into the mirror and we see, well, we see the things that are good. We also see the things that are not as good. And we see areas where we need to make adjustments in our lives. Well, when we look into the Word, we find areas where we have to adjust. And we make those adjustments. If we're a doer of the Word, if we're not just a hearer, and we're not just one who looks in and then leaves forgetting what we look like, we make adjustments to our lives. We take action in who we are. And that action spills out into the organized faith, into the religion itself. And James is going to give us, I think, some... True examples here of what real religion looks like. 
He's going to talk about how these individuals have acted and not just heard what God had to say. So look in verse 26. He says, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So when I read this, when I hear what James says, and he's very practical, right? You don't expect anything else from James. James is going to be practical with us. He's going to talk to us about right living, and he's going to give us examples of what that right living looks like. And he says to us as a faith, he says, real religion will demonstrate control. Will demonstrate control. Now, when I make that statement, I recognize that there are critics that would seize upon that statement. Critics of the Christian faith, critics of religion itself that would seize upon the statement I just made when I say that real religion demonstrates control. Because what many individuals have said is that for years, religion has done nothing but control people, control their minds and control their hearts and control, obviously, their actions. And they would cast it in a very negative light. I can almost hear the voices of Christopher Hitchens, the renowned atheist who spoke against religion and who blamed every bad thing in this world on religion. And unfortunately, he never changed his mind until he stepped into eternity. There are a lot of people out there that believe that's the type of religion and type of control that is evident all across our nation, across our world. But let me say to you, that that is not the control that I'm speaking about. And that is not the control that James is speaking about. James is not talking about how religion controls others. What he's talking about is how true religion will give us self-control in our lives. And there's a difference. When we come into contact with the Lord Jesus Christ and faith invades our lives, it gives us the ability and the empowerment to control ourselves. How important is that for us as believers to know? That real faith, real religion will bring forth self-control in who we are. I think it is so important for us to recognize that. Just, um, I guess, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to some young, I say young guys, actually a couple of them older than I am, uh, but they are taking seminary courses and, and they're trying to work in their ministry. And I talked to them about this very issue of ministry, of having self-control in their lives, in their character. Some years ago, Harvard Business School determined that the greatest indicator of success is not your IQ, but your EI. Now, what is your EI? It is your emotional intelligence. It's not about how much you know, but it is about your emotional intelligence. And what they would say is that it's about how you are aware of yourself and who you are, how you recognize your weaknesses and your strengths, and how you demonstrate control over those emotions, how you are able to control those emotions in your life. I I, I read the study when I was in seminary about this emotional intelligence, and I was very fascinated about it. And as I read it, I was reminded of how we can find those very principles in Scripture. 
Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. You probably could quote it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So what Harvard found in emotional intelligence and in saying that it is a predictor of success in life is what God's already told us about the Spirit of God active in within, a, within us. What he has said is that when the Spirit of God is active within us and who we are, we have self-control. We have the ability to control our emotions. We have the ability to control our actions. When I did some study years ago and looked at that idea of self-control, and I, I tagged it with Galatians 5.22, it really spoke to me that self-control should probably be better defined as spirit control. Right? Because it's the fruit of the Spirit that works out within us. In other words, if I'm yielded to the Spirit, if I'm submitted to Him, that means that God gives me the ability to demonstrate self-control. I can't do it any other way. Have you looked at this self lately? <laughs> I cannot control this self by myself. I have to have the Spirit's intervention. I have to have the Spirit's interaction within my life. You cannot control yourself. The Scripture is so clear to us. That if we are relying upon our own flesh, if we're relying upon our own desires, we're going to go astray every time. But it's when the Spirit of God invades us and when we are submitted and yielded to the Spirit of God in our lives that we're able to demonstrate self-control. That is what James, I think, is talking about. And he specifically talks about self-control when it comes to our speech. Again, look at verse 26. He says, if anyone among you thinks he is religious, in other words, if anyone thinks he has this organized set of, of faith and belief in, within him, if he's part of this community, he said, if he really believes that and he does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. He says there has to be control and real, real religion demonstrates control, self-control in our lives. Even when it comes to speech. I love that image of a bridle. Later on, James is going to talk about this again. He's going to talk about it in a more extended way in chapter 3. I think one of the other guys is going to preach that. John, you got that one? Do you think? You had not studied it yet? Buddy, you better get to studying. <laughs> I gave you that one for a reason, too. You need to read it and try to apply it to your life before you... One of the other guys is, will preach that passage in a few weeks. But I just want to touch on it here of just showing you this idea of the bridle and the control theme that is given by James. Is that there's a bridle. A bridle controls a horse. Hey, I grew up in the country. You figured that out by now. And my folks, my grandparents owned a dairy. And... I would go down and I would sit and I would watch them bring those Jersey cows in and they would milk those jerseys. And it, it was an incredible, fascinating thing for me as a young man just to sit down on those feed sacks and watch, watch this process. My mom, she loved 
cows because her parents did. And we had a few cows of our own that she would watch and take care of. But let me just tell you, we knew nothing about horses. Nothing. Now, my brother, one of my brothers, actually is a, is a horseman now. And he has learned. But back then, we had no idea. And my dad, bless his heart, I think he was so scared of a horse. We bought, hey, we bought one one time. We had it in the pasture behind the house. We'd walk back there. We'd look at it. We'd wave at it. <laughs> we'd admire it from a distance. Every now and then, every now and then, my dad would decide to get close to it. And what he would do is he would take a bridle. Now, this, this I'm not making this up, okay? He would convince the horse by the allurement of food or something like that, to come to the fence. And when the horse would stick its head over the fence, dad would find his opportunity to bridle the horse then, in that moment. That way he didn't have to get into the pasture with the horse. But he knew once he had the bridle on the horse, he controlled the horse. But that's the only way he would get that close, is if the bridle was really on the horse. I think about that. Think about it, especially in context here. The way you control the tongue is you have to bridle the tongue. And how difficult is that? How, how tough it is to control the tongue and what is said. And yet, James will tell us again and again that we have to demonstrate self-control over our tongue. I had a deacon's wife one time, I think I might have shared this, but deacon's wife told me one time, said, I just don't think before I speak. <laughs> well, the first step in making a change in life is admitting your fault, recognizing it. I mean, I, I, I really, I was really astounded. I was like, okay, so you know you don't think before you speak. So what if we can just kind of work to the point to where we do think before we speak? I mean, if... For us, we have to be people of self-control. We must learn to bridle our tongue. And, and what he says is, if you've got all these other things right, but you can't bridle your tongue. He said, you have deceived yourself. Did you see that? He says, you are living in self-deception. You think you're religious. You think you've got it all together. He said, but if you cannot demonstrate self-control in your life, your religion is useless. The word useless is used by Paul to describe worship of idols. So in other words, what he's saying is, your worship, your religion is no better than idolatry. If it really hasn't impacted you, if it really hasn't given you the ability to have self-control in your life, it's useless. It's empty. It's vain. It's worthless. So he first says real religion demonstrates control, in particular, self-control. Then look at verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. He says that real religion demonstrates compassion. Real religion will demonstrate compassion to those who need it. 
widows and orphans, the most vulnerable people, those who were not protected in any way by the society in New Testament times. These would be the people that would be most in need. Obviously, it was a patriarchal type of society. If a man were to die, his widow would be left, basically flounder on her own. There were no safety nets like we think about today. Basically, the widow would have to scrape and try to do everything that she could to just get by. Oftentimes, if you read the New Testament background, you'll find out that many of these widows had resort to immorality in their lives. Prostitution itself in order to try to just survive from day to day. And the children, unfortunately, children that did not have a father often were sold into slavery. I mean, it was a terrible time. And these were the most needy of the people of society. And what does it say? It says that real religion will visit these individuals. It will assist. The word visit is the idea that it will reach out to help and assist these individuals. Acts chapter 6. Usually we talk about Acts chapter 6 in context of the election of deacons. We talk about the seven. I was working through this the other day with some guys about the seven who were elected to take care of the church problems. And it is a beautiful passage of deacons doing their job and keeping the unity of the church. It, it is, and it says so much about deacon leadership. But don't miss this. What were they doing? They were taking care of the widows. Sometimes we miss that part because we're talking about the seven and the deacons and their ministry. But there was a need within the church to take care of the widows. Those who needed help the most. Now certainly I, I think it's great for us to make visits to them. I think it's great for us to remind shut-ins, widows, those who are on the outskirts. I think it's great for us to go by and personally visit with them and let them know we care. But again, this word here, visit, is much more than just a personal appearance. It is saying that you will go to assist and help and do whatever it takes to provide and to encourage. We as a people, a church, we exist to meet spiritual needs. But I think there is also the aspect of where we help to meet physical needs. I think that is still something that we find in the New Testament, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. When you look in the book of Acts, they were reaching out to their brothers and sisters, doing what they could to meet the needs that were all around them, the widows and the orphans. May, may I just make this statement? This is not to be a political statement whatsoever. Some of you will take it that way. That's okay. But it's not meant to be this a political statement. It's just a statement of truth, and that is this. The reason we have a welfare system today that's administered by the government is because the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ have not done what they were supposed to do. Amen. The government should have never had to do these things. And we can complain about it all day long. 
Many people do. But I'm going to tell you, it was the church of the Lord Jesus that was given the responsibility to reach those who were physically broken and in need. And what we have done is we have ceded our responsibility to others. James said, if you want to see real religion, you'll see people of compassion that are reaching out to the most vulnerable people of our society. The most needy, the ones that need us, the ones that need a helping hand, the ones who need a care demonstrated toward them. And I still believe this day that that's real religion that demonstrates compassion to other individuals. And then finally, real religion demonstrates clarity. Clarity between who we are and who the world is. Look at this, verse 27 again. And to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So real religion is going to demonstrate some type of control, self-control. It's going to demonstrate compassion. He says, these are practical examples. And then he says, third, it's going to demonstrate this clarity between who the people of Christ are and who the world is. And when James is talking about the world here, he's talking about this evil system that Satan himself, Satan himself directs. And it is a, an evil system that is against God, that is set against him. It has evil agendas. He says, this is the world that is out there. He said, what we're to do as a people of God is to keep ourselves pure before that world. We are to keep ourselves clear, unspotted. We're not to follow the agenda of the world later on again i'm not sure if i'm going to preach it or somebody else but later on he will speak about how friendship with the world is enmity with god in other words you can't have both you're either a friend of god or you're a friend of the world if you decide you're going to ally yourself with the world then you cannot claim to be a friend of god there should be a holiness about you there should be a set-apartness. A moment ago when we were singing the songs about purity and about God making us this type of sanctuary, I was thinking about how God has purposed for each and every one of us to be set apart from this world. We are to be set apart and we are to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is the ultimate goal, Right? What's the goal of Christianity? What the, what's the goal of your discipleship? Your goal is to become more like Christ every day. Every day. One of these days, God's actually going to fulfill that goal. And according to what I see in Scripture and what John tells us, is that we will look like Him. <laughs> the ultimate fulfillment of true discipleship. But until then, every day, He wants to work within us. To conform us to his image. That I'm looking more like Jesus. And that's a question I always challenge you with. I ask myself, do I look more like Jesus today than I did yesterday? Am I growing? Because I got a long way to go. But am I growing? Or am I just finding so much friendship with the world? Well, this is probably going to set you off too. But it's kind of nice because I'm going to be out of country and you probably can't get me the next two weeks, all right? 
By the time I get back, maybe you've calmed down just a little bit. But let me just say, for so many years in our churches, and thank God I don't hear this near as much anymore, but for so many years in our churches, we talked about becoming like the world. But what did we talk about mostly? We talked about dress. We talked about music. We talked about all those kinds of things. We, 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 we debated over all those things. And what was happening? We were losing a generation. What was happening? Well, we might talk about how we look, but when we walked out into the community, we acted just like everybody else. We did. And really, I got to a point in my life, I said, God... You know what? I, I really don't care. I, I, you know me. I wear a suit. I wear jeans. I wear whatever because I really don't think it matters so much. I'm not so much concerned about what people wear into this place. I'm more concerned about how they walk when they walk out of this place. And for too many years, we might have looked different, but we lived just like the world when we left here. Our relationships looked just like the world. We talked just like the world. We thought just like the world. And now we are reaping the benefits of it. But real religion says there is a clarity. There's a difference. And we ought to be able to see clearly who the believers are and who the non-believers are. And it should be in our actions, in our morality, in our perspectives. We should be so different in the way we hold to the scripture and the way we live scripture each and every day. We should be different in the way we demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. We should be different, just as I said a moment ago, we demonstrate self-control because the Spirit is within us. When others go awry and they're doing whatever they want to do and following their selfish ambitions, we are following the Spirit of God in our lives. That is the way we should be different. That's the way we're unspotted. When I read James, he's talking about morality. He's talking about the way we live. He's talking about the way we heed the Scripture. Oh, Satan would love nothing more than to get us focused on the small things and then steal from us the large things. And for many years, he's gotten us bickering about certain things in the church that really do not matter whatsoever. And he has stolen our families. He has stolen our kids. He has stolen our very testimony before an immoral world because we look just like them. Real religion demonstrates a clarity, a clearness in who we are. And this should challenge us. What does your religion look like? Is, is it a religion that demonstrates control? Is it a religion that demonstrates compassion? Is it a religion that demonstrates clarity like James says if it's not if it's not it's useless it's no good it's vain it's empty but the flip side of when you find a faith like that and a group of believers who hold 
to these elements of life and characteristics, what a joy it is. And how meaningful it is. And how life in the community of faith encourages us as God's people. I am thankful for the people that I love that I call Temple Baptist Church. And I am thankful that God calls us to demonstrate real religion each and every day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these moments that we've had. God, thank you for the challenge that you have given us from Scripture. And God, when we walk out of here today, may our friendship with you grow and grow. And may it be known among this community and beyond. Father, we do know that the control, the compassion, the clarity, that we can't manufacture that in our hearts or lives. We can't pretend. Lord, those things have to ultimately come from you and your son, the Lord Jesus. As a matter of fact, the only way we can live holy lives is because you are holy. And your son has provided for us everything that was needed to bring righteousness to us. God, thank you for the salvation you provided. Thank you that it was real. It was genuine. It was authentic. And Father, each day, may that salvation work itself out into sanctification. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here. There's some of them right now, Lord, it's hard to demonstrate that self-control in life. There's some of them here right now that it's hard to be compassionate with all the different things that are coming at us. Father, oh, it's hard to keep ourselves pure and clean of this world. But God, I pray that you would give us the necessary strength and wisdom to live for you each day. God, we thank you now. We, we commit ourselves to you, even during this moment of invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?